This is The Exchange, humanizing commerce through post-purchase connection. Welcome to The Exchange, where we're always talking post-purchase, brand building, and above all, customer retention. Most of the time, we have brands on the show to give you an overview of their strategy and their tactics. But what about a retention framework that you can apply to the specifics of your brand? That framework is what we're going to talk about today. The retention framework I always find myself recommending is the 8As framework from the book Never Lose a Customer Again. And instead of having me explain that framework, we thought it would be best to have the author do it. So I'm excited to have Joey Coleman joining us today. Welcome to The Exchange, Joey. Oh, Alex, thanks so much. I am super excited to be here with you. Thanks so much for inviting me, and I'm uh, looking forward to the conversation. Amazing. Now, before we dive too deep into the framework, obviously, like you wrote an entire book about customer retention. I feel like we need to unpack that a bit. Like, what were you <laughs> seeing happening out there that you said, I need to write an entire book about this? Yeah, no, I appreciate the question, Alex. I was running a marketing and branding agency for about 15 years. And like many marketing and branding agencies, my job was to drive people to the front door for my clients, whether that was in a click type environment or a physical type environment. How do we fill the funnel? How do we acquire new customers? How do we market? How do we sell? How do we get people to come give us a try? And what I realized is we were really good at that, but my clients, when I would go back to them two or three months later and I, we'd be reviewing the numbers, they'd say, yeah, you made the phones ring and we got a lot of leads and we closed them, but it hasn't appreciably moved the dial on our overall revenues. And I'm like, how is that happening? We're, we're bringing in like tons of leads for you guys. What is going on? And when we dove into the numbers, I realized that they weren't keeping them that they were signing them as customers. They were paying for their first product or their first month of service or whatever it was, but they were leaving. And when this dawned on me, I my mind rocketed back to a study that I had read a decade earlier. Now, this shows just a little bit how geeky I am, you know, sitting around on a Friday night reading banking studies. But I remember reading this study that said uh, that 32% of new bank customers will close the bank account they opened within one year of opening it. 32% don't make the one-year anniversary. Jeez. Alex, I thought to myself, this is insane. 30, like Bankers are people that we think of as paying attention to the bottom line, knowing their numbers, paying attention to money. And I'm like, yet 32%, almost a third of the people who they spent all their time, effort, and money to acquire were leaving before the one-year anniversary. And I don't know about you or when the last time you opened a bank account is. It's a pain in the neck. It's not fun. You got to fill out all kinds of paperwork. You got to show multiple forms of ID. You've got to get checks printed. If you're old school like me, you've got to get a new <laughs> ATM card. You've got to get set up your e-banking, your e-deposit. You've got to figure out uh, the PIN number for your ATM card. I mean, there's all this rigmarole. And despite the fact that people went through all of that, 32% didn't live, didn't stay for one year. What was more staggering than that, Alex, is that half of those, 16%, left in the first 100 days. And that single statistic made me say, wait a second, we're having double-digit defection in the first 100 days. I wonder if that's a common problem. It feels like it could be a common problem, but it can't be that big of an issue and not have people writing about it and talking about it and figuring out how to solve it. But the reality is it was that big of an issue and there weren't a lot of people in the marketplace addressing it. 
Very few books had been written on customer onboarding. Very few speakers were talking about customer onboarding. And the more research I did, the more I realized that companies were desperate to have a framework to address this problem. Because a lot of companies didn't realize they had the problem. But as soon as they realized they had a problem, they were like, oh my gosh, we are hemorrhaging customers. What do we do to fix it? And so I spent about a decade figuring out how to fix it. And then I wrote the book about it. That's amazing. And you're, you're 100% right. Like opening a bank account, like doing that every single year, like that's that's so much work on the customer. Like the worst. To put yourself through that, something has to be incredibly broken to put yourself through that. So <laughs> I hear that. And you said something there that they leave within the first 100 days. And the subtitle of your book is Turn Any Sale into Lifelong Loyalty in 100 Days. Is that where that 100 days came from, from the bank study? And like, is there, is there something specific about that 100 days on like, that's where to focus? Yeah, there is, Alex. And what's interesting is, so it all started with that bank study. And then I said, well, if this is the case in banking, what's it like in other industries? So I set about researching and trying to figure out, and I'm a recovering attorney by nature, so the idea of doing research is something that I'm very familiar with. I started researching and trying to find out what I could. And what I realized is across all industries, online and off, product and service, national and international, small, medium, and large, you name it, across all industries, Somewhere between 20 and 70% of new customers leave in the first 100 days. 20 to 70%. Auto mechanics is 68%. Restaurants is between 50 and 70%, depending on the type of cuisine you serve. Uh, software as a service is 20%. Cell phones is uh, 32%. I mean, the numbers were absolutely staggering. And when I realized that this was something plaguing every industry, I set about to identify a framework that would apply to every industry. Because see, one of the things that's always bothered me about business is people, business owners, and I'm an entrepreneur and a business owner myself, so I, I resemble this remark sometimes, right? We think that our business is unique. We think that our business is, oh, wait a second, you don't understand in our industry or, or the one that drives me insane. Well, we're B2B, not B2C or blah, blah, blah. No, people, you're H to H, you're human to human. And the reality is if we ground a framework in the human condition, in human psychology, it will apply in every industry. Now, will it lay down perfectly that the day 100 is the magic day in every industry? No. In some industries, it happens before that. In some industries, it happens slightly after that. But on average, that magic number is day 100. Because if you get to day 101, in the typical business, if your customer is ecstatic with the relationship, if after basically three months, three and a half months, they're loving you, the typical customer will stay for five years. That's amazing. I don't know about you, Alex. This is simple math for me, right? <laughs> you, you ask me, I got to sprint hard for 100 days to get a benefit for five years? I'll do that all day, every day. That's like going to Vegas and saying, hey, if you hand them $100, they'll give you $5,000. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that all day long. I love that. And you're talking about the difference between industries here. Obviously, we're going to be diving deep on the e-com side of things. And in terms of like retention rate in e-commerce, like I do some con retention consulting as well. And what I'm usually seeing is like a repeat customer rate. So obviously, not every e-com brand is subscription. But in terms of someone coming back and making another purchase, it's around like 11% to 25%. So e-com has a problem as well. It's not just those other industries that you were talking about there. And I loved what you were saying, like, 
people don't realize this is a problem. And then all of a sudden they see it and like the light bulb, like the switch goes and it's like, man, this is really a problem. And I think 2021 is the year where people are starting to see that. There is a lot of emphasis being put on retention in the e-com world. And I'm super pumped about that. I know you are as well, but I was hoping we can dig a little bit deeper on the e-com side of things. And I know Never Lose a Customer wasn't written for e-commerce brands specifically. It was to basically provide a framework that anyone could use. But we're going to go deep in some or deeper on some of the tactics in the e-commerce world. And again, I will say this over and over again. This is the book that I recommend even in e-commerce. Oh, thanks, Alex. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, and for what it's worth, I as you know, having read the book, there's 46 case studies in the book. And I intentionally picked several brands that were in the e-com space to feature as case studies to show that it works. I mean, off the top of my head, the two that come to mind immediately from the book is the story of Zajix and what they're doing and the story of four canines and what they're doing. One is more of a subscription-based e-com business. The other is kind of a once-and-done e-com business that is about building brand loyalty. And then they have multiple products that kind of surround in the pet space brand. And what we found is that these principles applied insanely in the e-commerce space and most e-com businesses aren't doing anything appreciable around retention. And so the fact of the matter is if you're in e-com and you're paying attention to retention, your customers are putting you into a different category. They're, they're seeing the delivery methodology as being e-commerce but they're seeing the relationship methodology as being much more high-touch, high-value, high-brand, long-term value. And as a result, you get all the benefits of scale and operation from e-com and all the depth of relationship and share of wallet that you maybe get in more of a high-touch personal service business. E-com, if done properly, allows you to combine the best of both worlds. Absolutely. The unfortunate thing is a lot of e-com right now is very transaction focused, very acquisition focused. And when you end up on the transactional side and not the relationship emotional side, that's where you get stuck in like, oh, we got great scale. Like we can we can build a machine, but you forget the people component of it. Totally. And your framework is fantastic for that. So I call like I don't know if you actually refer to it as the eight A's. I always call it the eight A's framework. But yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I do. And but you know, it's funny when I was putting it together, people are like, why do they all start with A? And I was like, well, two reasons. Number one, just pulling back the curtain and being honest. As I was coming up with it, those were the words that were coming to mind. I was trying to come up with the best descriptive word to explain what was going through the customer's mind and heart and body at the time in the customer life cycle. And I also got to thinking, you know, we've all gone to school and, you know, it's been celebrated, this idea of getting straight A's. And I was like, look, if your customers are scoring you as a straight A in all of the A days, you are crushing it. You are guaranteed to have a successful, sustainable business. And in the same way that in school, if you had A's in four classes, but F's in the other four, you're in trouble. And so that's what we're trying to do is to recognize that no one of these phases is more important than the others. They all build on each other. They all connect to each other. And while there are eight, I will say the typical business is only paying attention to about four or five at max. Most, very few businesses that I've come across are really paying attention strategically, consciously, systematically to all eight phases of the customer journey. Yeah, I'd argue a, a 
way too many businesses are only focusing on two of them. And maybe Joey, <laughs> before we <laughs> before we go into the like some of the places I want to pick apart for ecom specifically, did you maybe want to just give like a very a fifty thousand foot view of what those eight A's are for our listeners? Sure. And Alex, with your permission, I'm going to go through this in fire hose speedy fast way because we could spend. A- an hour on any one of these phases and just scratch the surface. So let me give our listeners or viewers, everybody an understanding of generally what we're thinking about when we look at the eight days. So we begin with phase one, assess. This is when a prospect is considering whether or not they want to do business with you. In common parlance, we call this marketing and sales. We then come to phase two, admit. This is day one of the first 100 days. So think of assess as day zero. It's all those days leading up to it. Admit, phase two is day one, where they acknowledge, this prospect acknowledges that they have a problem or a need that they believe you can help them with. They buy your product. They sign on the dotted line. They add it to the shopping cart and they click purchase. Whatever it may be, they do the buying signal where there's a transaction. Money is exchanged from them to you and they officially transition from being a prospect to a customer. We then come to phase three, the affirm phase. This in common parlance is the buyer's remorse phase, right? The customer begins to doubt the decision they just made. All science, all research tells us that with every purchase, there is some modicum of buyer's remorse that the customer experiences. The typical business has heard of buyer's remorse. They've read about it. They've studied it or they've you know thought about it, but they haven't done anything to address it with their customer. We then come to phase four, the activate phase. I call this activate because I want you to think of energizing the relationship. This is the first real moment of truth. In an e-commerce setting, it's when the product arrives at their house or their office, they open it up, the unboxing experience. They start to use your product for the first time. We then come to phase five, the acclimate phase. In the acclimate phase, our customer starts to use our product or our service, and they get used to our way of doing business. We have to hold their hand. We have to acclimate them to the approach we're taking, how to get the best benefit out of our products, whatever it may be. We then come to phase six, the accomplish phase. This is where the customer accomplishes the goal they had when they originally decided to do business with you. Now, the crazy thing about this one, Alex, is lots of times businesses think that the customer is trying to accomplish one goal when the reality is they're trying to accomplish a completely different goal. If we don't pay attention to what the customer defines as the finish line, and if we don't mark their progress towards that finish line and then celebrate when they cross that finish line, not only does it show we're not connected and paying attention, but if we don't remind them to celebrate, chances are better than not, they never will. They will never associate that euphoric feeling of having the goal they had accomplished because of your product or your service. We then come to phase seven, the adopt phase, when our customers become loyal to us and only us. They're not looking at the competition. They'll buy anything we create. And finally, phase eight, the holy grail, the phase that everybody's trying to get to, but they're trying to get there way too fast, the advocate phase, where the customer becomes a raving fan, singing our praises far and wide, referring new business to us. So those are the eight phases. And the secret here is you've got to do all eight phases. They come in that order and you've got to hold the customer's hand as they go from one to the next. Now, here's the pro tip for the folks who are listening going, yeah, that sounds like a fairly typical customer journey. I think I've got an understanding of that. When you get to phase eight, you're not done when they're the advocate. 
Because every time you in, introduce a new product or a new service, even though they are an advocate of your existing offering, the first offering that they came to you from, they go back to phase one. Now, they move through the phases faster this second time, potentially, but lots of times businesses think when they're selling to people that are existing customers, well, you're already a raving fan, so surely you're going to be a raving fan of this one. I'll just send it to you and it'll be great. No, 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 friends. You've got to recognize that psychologically and emotionally, we've pressed a reset button. Now, it's a reset button that still has some memory, still has some <laughs> brand equity, but we got to go back and navigate them through. And we rinse and repeat. And if we do this again and again and again, it creates a circle and a flywheel cycle that just continues to feed on itself time after time as you roll out new products and services. That's a really important point because like while some e-com brands are doing the subscription model, so they're like naturally trying to restart people, a lot of brands aren't. So making sure that you're understanding that the customer journey is a cycle that is going to continue over and over again. That's a really good point. And I know we're not going to have time on this episode to cover every single one of those phases. And we want someone to pick up the book as well at the end to take to take a look. So there are actually four of the A's that I want to focus on. Awesome. Which, which ones do we want to focus on first, Alex? What do you think? I think, so there's four. I think we want to talk about affirm. We want to talk about activate. We want to talk about accomplish. And I want to talk about advocate. Perfect. Because you're right. People get there way too quick. So in the e-com world, obviously it's not like retail. I don't go and buy something. I hold it in my hand and I take it home right away. I'm viewing something on my computer. I'm viewing something on my phone. I make the purchase and now there's a gap between me even getting that product. So that buyer's remorse, like they have days to be thinking about the purchase that they just made before they actually even get to experience it. Do you have any tips for the e-com listeners out there on like, how do we solve buyer's remorse when we have all that time? Like, I feel like e-com has the worst time frame for buyer's remorse out of anyone. It, it really does, you know, and, and e-com does struggle with that. Here's the interesting thing. It's not that we... Uh, how shall I say this? The problem is the quiet space. The problem is the fact that nothing is happening during that time from your brand towards the customer. So they are left to their own devices, to their own thought processes, to their own biochemical brain reaction to doubt the decision they made. Because see, when we make a purchase, our brain floods with dopamine. We feel joy, euphoria, and excitement. This is the product that's gonna be the answer to my prayers. This is the solution I've been looking for. We feel all excited. And that dopamine fills our brain and we feel a rush. But as that dopamine recedes, those feelings of joy, euphoria, and excitement are replaced by feelings of fear and doubt and uncertainty. Well, what if the product doesn't arrive? What if when it does arrive, it's broken? What if it arrives, but it's not broken, but it doesn't do the thing I wanted it to do? What if it arrives, it's not broken, it doesn't do the thing I want it to do, will, will I be able to get a refund? Or will they give me one of those boring store credits that if I you already ruined the relationship once, I don't want to store credit with you? What will they, and their brain spins out of control of all the things that could go wrong as opposed to all the things that could go right. So what does an e-com business want to do? Well, number one, you want to communicate every step of the journey. And I guarantee the majority of people listening at some point have purchased something from Amazon. And Amazon is obviously the 800-pound gorilla in the room when it comes to e-com. Amazon does a great job of this. When you make a purchase, they send you an email confirming that your purchase happened. 
And then the next day or whenever it's boxed, they send you an email or a text message. Hey, your package has been shipped. Here's the tracking number. And then by the way, your package is out for delivery. Oh, and by the way, your package has just been delivered. Lots of times when you get that, your package has just been delivered message, you're already holding the item. But it shows that they care about it getting all the way to you. So I think the secret in the affirm phase is to communicate what's happening. Now, maybe the folks listening don't have the resources that Amazon has. I understand. But what you could do is communicate with that customer at least when it ships. And if you have a projected time frame from shipping, which every e-com business should have, you, you know, maybe it's three to five days and you're not sure, send a message on day five that says, hey, it should have arrived by now. I'm not seeing on my end. Just hit back yes if it has and no if it hasn't. And if it hasn't, rest assured, we'll get on it and track it down for you. Yep. Those types of little votes of confidence make people think that there's a human on the other side of the e-com transaction. That's the biggest differentiator between bricks and mortar and e-com. In bricks and mortar, when I walk in, I know there's a human there who's handing me the product and making sure I get it. I don't necessarily know if this is one solo entrepreneur running dropship via Alibaba from China and who knows if I'll get it or not, or if this is a multi-million dollar, hundreds of employees with their own warehouse e-com operation in the U.S. I don't know. And we can't expect our customers to know how much confidence they should have in us if we're not showing them that they should have confidence in us. That's a really interesting point. So like 100%, the transparency of like what's going on from purchase to arriving at the door. But what you're talking about there makes me think about something else, like the human aspect of this. So like, yeah, like there's the transactional emails that are going through there as well. Like in this, the quiet space in between, like, is this a good time to be introducing an email that's like showing off who you are, like the people that are there, like what your brand stands for, even before they get the product? Alex, I don't think it's a good time. I think it's a great time. It's the perfect time, right? Because we know, we know that the research shows they're having doubt and they're wondering, is there anyone on the other end of this shopping cart that actually gives a darn about whether or not I get my product? When you show a video thanking them for the order and the video is one of your customer service reps or your founder or whoever it is in your organization. There's an amazing company. Um, I didn't get the chance to feature them in the book because at the time I was writing the book, they were basically in startup mode. It's called Pila, P-E-L-A. So Pila is a company based in Western Canada and they make a compostable cell phone case. And I don't know about you, Alex, with all due respect to my friends at Pila, I had never thought, man, I need a compostable cell phone case. Hasn't crossed my mind either. <laughs> until the folks at Pila showed me how much waste I was producing every time I bought a new phone that's a different size and bought a new case for it to go in so that I didn't damage my phone. And then what do you do with that old case? Well, you throw it away. You're not using that phone anymore. And if you look at the amount of waste that is created in a disposable nature with phones in general, but then we add on the case, the covering case, it's staggering. So Pila said, we're going to make a compostable phone case. When you're done, you have two options. Plant it in your garden and it'll compost on its own. Or if you live in an urban environment and you don't have somewhere where you can easily plant it, we will pay to take it back. We will break it down and recycle it into future cases that we sell. 
Oh my gosh, unbelievable. So here's what Pila does. They started in 2020, so this last year, to your point about personal connection, sending personal thank you videos for the people who bought from their store. They did over 35,000 of them. Now stop and let that think sink in a little bit. They did over 35,000 personalized thank you videos where they called the person by name and thanked them for their purchase and they sent that video explaining that to the person. And imagine what that did for the relationships with those people. I don't know about you, Alex. I've never purchased something online where I got a personal thank you video from the company. To take things one step further, Pila has all of their employees filming the videos. So not just the customer service reps, Jane in accounting, Bob in logistics, Frank who runs the website. They've got everybody in the company films during the course of a year a batch of 25 videos. Now, does that mean that, you know, they're doing videos all day, every day? No, but what it does mean is the employees are invested in creating remarkable experiences as well. And I believe that customer experience and employee experience are two sides of the same coin. If you're delivering a great customer experience, I can almost guarantee you've got a great employee experience. If you've got a horrible employee experience, I can almost guarantee you've got a horrible customer experience. I love that because like we're talking about making sure that the customer feels connected to the brand. But what about like all the employees feeling connected to the customer? Like you're obviously going to make amazing decisions when, I don't know, Jane from accounting and Bob from logistics, like when they're getting that interaction with the customer, it's going to start to impact how they're looking at their parts of the business as well. So like, not only is that a great tactic in the affirm stage, like that's just a great business tactic in general. Absolutely. So we're building engagement with our customers and engagement with our employees at the same time. Two for one. I mean, that's my favorite kind of project to roll out in an organization where we've got multiple benefits from the same initiative. Everyone's got to pick that one up. Go two for one. After the Affirm stage, buyer's remorse, like we're making sure that people aren't feeling bad about the decision they made in e-commerce. Now the package arrives at my door and I open it up. And like in the framework, that would be the activate phase. Correct. Do you have any tips for brands out there on like what to do on that unboxing? Because again, they had all the excitement of making that purchase on the site. Now we're delayed. And now we're kind of like rebooting the experience a couple days later. Well, I think the secret for that is to realize that that has the potential to be another dopamine rush. So we had the dopamine rush when we put it in the cart and we hit purchase. And then the dopamine faded. And hopefully we're doing stuff in the affirm stage to kind of counterbalance that dopamine fade. But now when I get it and open it, here's the thing. I already know what's supposed to be in the box, the thing I ordered. But even as I'm cutting the box open, my brain is saying, eh, it might be, might be the wrong thing. Might have broken in transit. What can you do to make the unboxing experience remarkable? There's a ton of things. We can think about packaging, right? Apple actually has somebody on staff who's responsible for the sound that it makes when you open an Apple iPhone box, right? That little 
sound, the suction. They actually have somebody on staff whose job, they're like an acoustic design specialist who's designing the sound that makes. So when I make that sound, everybody who's got an iPhone is like, oh man, Joey, yeah, I remember that sound the first time I opened it, right? Here's the thing. What is the sound of your unboxing experience? What is the smell of your unboxing experience? Are there things in the box that I wasn't expecting, but I'm excited to get? I recently bought a new microphone uh, from the folks at Sweetwater, right? It's an online um, electronics uh, and music store. In the box was a little thing of candy, little sweet water candy. Now, I have to imagine that cost them pennies. But to open a box with a microphone and get a little sugar rush from a brand named Sweet, it was kind of like, well, that's different. That's interesting. That's unique. So when you think about it, what are little things that you could put into your packaging that create a human connection? Um, I ordered a package recently from an e-commerce business that on the outside of the box, they wrote, thank you, Joey, and drew a heart around the Joey. Now that took somebody five seconds. But when I received it, I was like, wow. Thank you. I feel special. I feel like someone actually cared. Here's the thing. All they had to do is read the address label and it was written on the outside of the box in a Sharpie marker. So it's like, it's not like it was a big expense investment, but it created a moment of connection. The last thing I'll say on this is think about the time frame between when somebody opens the box and when they can actually use the product and do whatever you can to reduce that amount of time. So, for example, things like frustration-free packaging, not needing a 78-page instructions and directions manual that, by the way, they're not going to read anyway. Okay, they're not going to read it. Sorry, I hate to break it to you. You spent all this time thinking about it and packaging it. The majority of people are going to open the box and want to use it. This is something brilliant that Apple did early on with the iPhone. They shipped the iPhone fully charged. I know I'm dating myself a little bit, but prior to that, if you bought a cell phone, The first thing you did when you got home was plug it into the wall for eight hours and then you can use it. So you delayed my gratification an additional eight hours after receipt. Apple said, why don't we just ship the phones charged so that people can power it up immediately? You don't get an instruction manual with your iPhone. You turn it on and it works and it's amazing, right? And again, I know there's some people listening that are like, Joey, but you don't understand. We don't have the budget of Apple. We don't have the budget of Amazon. We don't have the budget of Sweetwater. I get it. But in every business, there are things you can be doing to reduce the amount of time between receipt and usage. Because by the way, usage is the first step towards getting them moving to that accomplish phase. If they don't ever use it, they're never coming back. I don't know about you, Alex. I'm not proud to say this, but there have been plenty of things that I've purchased over my life that I bought and I never actually used. In fact, with most people, if you go into their closet, they have some clothes that they haven't worn or maybe they wore once or twice. You had a vision to wear it a lot more, but you just never did. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It means you're human. So what can we do to make sure that our products get used? that our products become adopted by our customers. You can tell I have no strong opinions on this. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love that. And like the comment about the budget side of things, like writing something on the package with a Sharpie, like you don't need any budget for that. How much does a Sharpie cost? A dollar. And that takes like 30 seconds of someone's time. And like the unboxing experience, you're right. Like there's, you can, you can do 
you can engineer that to the umpteenth degree like Apple's doing, or you can keep it dead simple. But even something like you're selling scented candles, like making sure that like as soon as you open the box, you can smell it. Like there's some there's some way to get someone to usage real quick without needing anything other than like don't wrap it up so tight that like it is completely like you can't smell anything when you open the box. Right. Or what about if you're selling scented candles? What about including two matches? So that when I pull the candle out of the box, I don't have to go, gosh, do I have a match around here? Where's my lighter? What am I doing? No, include it in the box. Strike it and light it with a little message maybe on the box that says, we don't want you to waste any time in getting to smell your wonderful Forest Glen blend or whatever it may be. Great. So st- And now they're using it. And the, I guarantee the match is going to cost you pennies. But the impact that's going to have psychologically on your customer, they're going to say, wow, they really thought through this. That was really generous. That is an amazing idea. Branded match, like that branded matchbook in there. Like, what is that going to call? Um, any, any scented candle companies listening to this, like steal that right yeah, now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and here's the thing, Alex. It's my personal belief. There's no limit to the number of things you can do to enhance your customer experiences other than your own creativity. That is literally the only limit on the experiences you can create. I love that because yes, people get so hung up in the unboxing experience with like, well, if I go from this box to this box, it's going to go from like $5 to $15 and I can't afford that. Just add add the matchbox in, hit it with a Sharpie. They're 100% agree. And you alluded to where I want to talk about next there when you started to talk about the accomplish phase. So we talked about the accomplished phase. Like this is when someone has actually used the product for what they wanted it to do. They found success with the product. And I think way too many of us get caught in the accomplished phase is actually the activate. Like, oh, yes. they have the product yes. in their hands. Exactly. Like, so therefore we're, we're good. <laughs> right. Exactly. No, the, the accomplished phase, it's so true. And this is where, for what it's worth, it gets very product dependent. Everybody's going to be striving towards the accomplished phase, but depending on the product you're selling, that accomplished phase might happen at a different day in the calendar, right? So here's what I mean by that. If someone's buying a scented candle, let's go to that example. They're going to accomplish the goal when they light the candle and the smell fills their home and they feel positive about the smell. That's the accomplish phase. Let's pretend we sell wedding dresses. Okay, so you sell a wedding dress. Most people that sell wedding dresses think that the accomplish phase is the wedding day when they wear the wedding dress. No. The accomplished phase is when they get the photos back from the wedding and they looked fabulous in the dress. That's what we're actually buying the dress for. We're buying the dress to look amazing in the photos after the wedding. That's the proof that it was accomplished. Capture it forever. Exactly. So all these brands that are trying to message people right after receipt and ask for reviews or ask for advocacy or ask for referrals, you're asking too early. I'm a victim of this myself. When I first published my book, my thought was, God, people are going to just read this book and the reviews are going to start pouring in. This is going to be amazing. But I forgot my own behavior when I get a book. Very rarely does a book arrive that I open it and start reading it immediately. At the very least, if it arrives during the day, lots of times I'm putting it on the nightstand and I'll read it tonight before I go to bed. But by the way, there's already 38 other books on the nightstand. So depending on this book, it may go to the top of the stack, the middle of the stack, or the bottom of the stack. 
And then I've got to actually work my way through the book. And the longer book you write, and let's be candid, I wrote a long book, okay? <laughs> I worked with my publisher. They were like, it's got to be shorter. I was like, you tell me which case studies to take out. Because I wanted to include all the case studies because I wanted anybody who was reading the book who says, but Joey, you don't understand. My business is a solo entrepreneur. My business has a thousand employees. My business operates internationally. My business operates domestically. I wanted, and there's a chart at the beginning of the book, which breaks down all the case studies by number of employees and revenue size. And the idea there is if those are your objections, I don't have the staff to do it. I don't have the money to do it. You can look at that chart and see where are the ones that have very few people and very few dollars and what are they doing creative, creatively versus the ones that have more resources. So I think there's an opportunity here to look at your product and say, what is the actual accomplish point? And that's when you reach out to the customer to make sure they've got it done. I think that's a hundred percent with like industry dependent. Those are both great examples. My, my mind's going to like, even like clothing, it's not like getting it. It's like when I wear it for what I wanted it for. Correct. I bought this dress for a party. I bought these jeans for hunting. I, I need to go and actually use those to feel accomplished. Absolutely. And here's the thing. I think more retailers and e-com is uniquely positioned to be able to do this. Once the person buys the product and they check out, so often e-com sites have these little BS little pop-up surveys that happen at the end. Oh, tell us how we did on the shopping cart. Re really? <laughs> really? You want my feedback on your shopping cart? Come on. What I would rather see is a question that says, hey, thanks so much for buying these jeans. Quick question. What are you going to use them for? And then five little buttons. Hunting going out on Friday nights, wearing to work, uh, wearing to church, um, you know, using them on the farm, whatever it may be. And then a sixth one that says other and leave space to fill in. And given the opportunity to mark more than one if they want to and fill in. And then just wait for the answers to roll in and see what happens. And let's say I buy a pair of jeans, to your example, Alex, that I'm going to use for hunting. And I buy the jeans in June. Anybody who knows hunting generally knows you're probably not going hunting in June, at least legally in most jurisdictions that I'm aware of. So what I would, if you buy jeans in June and you say you're going hunting and I know what state you're in, I can make some assumptions on when hunting season starts in your state. And imagine if I sent you an email in October that said, hey, Alex, I know hunting season's around the corner. I'm sure those jeans are going to work fabulously for you. But if they don't, just hit reply to this message and we'll take care of you. That would blow your mind. You would be like, oh my God, I didn't even remember that I bought these for hunting. I bought these three months ago. What are you talking? It would blow your mind. And that's the kind of story that then you're out with your buddies hunting and you say, hey, these jeans I'm wearing, let me tell you about these jeans. Now, most people, most consumers don't presume that hunters are out talking to each other about their jeans. But if you give them a reason to talk to each other, now you've created advocates. I love that. And like, obviously, anyone who's looking at customer retention, advocacy, loyalty, whatever you want to call it, that is the end goal of all of this. And you alluded to it earlier. And e-commerce has a problem with this with, Joey, you just made a purchase. Please review this. Joey, yeah. you just made a purchase. Go refer one of your friends and we'll give you $15. Like, does e-commerce have this backwards? Like, are we trying to shortcut this way too much? A hundred percent. 
hundred percent. And I think the reason for that in e-com as an industry comes by it, uh, you know, uh, honestly, in the sense that so much of e-com is built on looking at other e-commerce businesses and trying to model what works instead of saying, is this the kind of behavior I want to be a part of? Like this is one of the things about pop-up ads, you know, or pop-ups on websites. Now, some of you have them and some of you don't, and I don't have a horse in that race one way or the other, but I hope you've thought about whether you like pop-ups or not. Like, for example, I don't have pop-ups on my site. And people say to me all the time, they're like, Joey, if you had more pop-ups, you'd be getting more things. I'm like, I don't care. I don't care because I don't want to be that kind of person in my brand. Does that mean I'm leaving money on the table? 100%. But does that mean I'm building more equity with the people who do come through my funnel because they weren't feeling subjectively or you know, uh, subconsciously forced into it? Yes. So I think at the end of the day, I, I, mo- the reason why most businesses struggle with reviews and struggle with advocacy is they don't know how to ask and they don't know when to ask. And the combination of those two things is a hot mess. You got to pay attention to when should you ask. You should ask after you're sure they've accomplished their goal. Don't ask for a review before they could have accomplished their goal because it's too early. Number two, make sure the thing you're asking for is commensurate with the impact. You know, you mentioned the, oh, I just finished the checkout. Give us another email and I'll give you $5 off your next order or $15 off your next order. I'm sorry. My friendships and my friends' emails that I know are worth more to me than $15. You could offer me $150 and I'm not going to send it. You could (laughs) offer me $1,500, I'm not going to send it. $10,500 or $15,000, you might start to get my attention. You might start to get me to go, well, there might be a couple people that I could just send over (laughs) that way, you know, blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing. All too often, brands think that if we just throw money at this problem, we'll get the behavior we want. What I would rather do is when somebody writes an amazing review, we actually thank them for that review. Oh, novel concept. And then we build on top of that. And then we get into a conversation of, oh, well, who else do you know, Alex, that might like this? And that's how you build advocates that are actual advocates instead of paid shills. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> preaching to the choir there with referrals, like you, and it ends up just being a, another paid acquisition channel if you're not actually taking them through through the entire process. And yeah, what and when. And it's going to be hard to understand like when exactly for every brand. It's going to be different. But like, let I guess my advice here would be like, think about what Joey's saying in the accomplished phase. When is someone getting to that point? If it's the scented candle, that's probably a little bit quicker to get to the accomplished than someone who's buying, I don't know, a book as an example. Like I need to, I need to have time to read the book. Like if I devoted Every minute I had to reading Never Lose a Customer Again, it's still probably going to take me like at least the entire day to like get through that. Absolutely. And everything else is going to come up in my life. I don't have time to be like review this after four hours of purchasing it. Yeah. I mean, me reading the book to people in the audio book is hours and hours and hours. I forget what the final count is, but I, I want to say what was it, like eight hours, 11 hours? It's obscene. Now, I know you can, you know, click that up to 2x speed or 3x (laughs) speed. And I talk like Mickey Mouse, right? But that's, you know, when we acknowledge what our customers are actually going through, here's the thing, Alex, all you have to do is ask them. Not everyone is going to answer and that's okay. But I guarantee enough will answer 
that you'll start to get some data that you can make some pretty educated guesses about the lag time between receipt and usage for whatever your product is. A hundred percent. And when we're talking about like paying for marketers, like on the referral side, so we, one thing I want to get your opinion on is we just, at the time of recording this, we just went through Valentine's Day. And Joey, I don't know about your inbox, but like oh. mine is Valentine's Day, 25% off. Valentine's Day, buy one, get 70% off. Like my, it's just flooded. Nothing says I love you like, like a, a discount. discount. <laughs> what? Come on. Yeah, no. And I get it. And I get it that businesses are struggling, especially in this COVID era. And people are trying to drive attention. They're trying to drive purchases. But when you are discounting your products or services to align with a holiday discount, what that says to most consumers is your product is overpriced. Stop and think about the fact that most consumers, when they see 75% off, get a pretty good idea what your margins are. Because they go, well, there's no way, because the average consumer doesn't understand the concept of loss leaders. So the average consumer is going, well, it was $10.00 and they're selling it for 250. I guarantee they're still making money. So it's probably only worth a dollar. So normally when they sell it for $10, they're marking it up $9. Ugh, I want nothing to do with that brand. Like that's what the human condition, that's what the mind is doing. I'm not anti-discount, but give a reason for a discount. Give a reason that is commensurate with the kind of discount you want. If I'm buying eight products for you, from you, I like the idea of getting a discount. Because by the way, I'm buying a lot of different things. So bulk and multiple purchases should necessitate some type of a discount. The one that drives me crazy, Alex, is the discount for becoming a new customer. Cable companies are notorious for this. Hey, your first year of cable is $19. Your second year of cable, it's $150 a month. And it's like, wait a second. I've been with you for a decade and I'm paying more than some rando off the street who will sign up for the service. I'm waiting for the company, cell phone cable company, any type of subscription company that comes along and says, here's the deal. For every year you're with us, your price goes down. Wait, what? Inflation and all? Yeah, but let's be candid. If I've got your system set up and you're on year four of your modem in your house from the cable company for your internet connectivity, chances are better than not. It's stable. It's good. And I'm not doing service calls. Yep. Like everything's your utility. It's just happening. Why not give a benefit financially for loyalty. Because now I know, huh, my rates are going down. If I go and I went to someone else, my rates would actually go up. That's how the conversation changes. I'd rather see it say, hey, if you've been a customer of our cable company for more than 10 years, you pay $5 a month or something ridiculous. Guess what? Everybody who's in year eight is going to go off. Oh, I can just stick with it for two more years. I'll be down to $5 a month. You start to use psychology in a way that is encouraging the type of behavior you want. A hundred percent. And you see, like, I see so many people with like, oh, here's a pop-up, like, give us your email address. Like, it's not even for becoming a customer. And it's like, we're going to give you 15% off. And then I was actually just having this conversation the other day about like loyalty programs. And it's like, well, people aren't seeing value in my loyalty program. Well, that's because they need to spend $3,000 to get $5 off, but you're giving them 15% for their email and you're running a discount next weekend for 30%. Why am I going to feel special when you're giving every Joe Schmo on the street 
35% and I spent $3,000 with you and I get five bucks. <laughs> totally. And, and make the acknowledgement commensurate with the value of the purchase. I had a client one time uh, who did business with another vendor and they told me this story that they had referred a million dollars in new business to that vendor. A million dollars in bookable business that they know got booked. At the end of the year, they got a letter from the vendor thanking them for their referrals and a $10 Starbucks gift card. Now, I don't know about you, Alex. You're hard-pressed to get a drink at Starbucks for $10. So what they really did is give you a discount at Starbucks, not an actual drink at Starbucks, and that presumes you like the drinks that they serve at Starbucks. And I'm looking at this going, it was a million dollars. It would have been better had they just sent a thank you note with no gift. That actually would have been better. Or to not even acknowledge it would have been better than to acknowledge it with such a trite thanks that really said, hey, that's how much we love and care about you. Come on, we can do better. We know how to do better. Just do the thing that you wish brands would do to you and do for you. And nine times out of 10, that's the right choice in your business. Couldn't agree more. Well, Joey, we've gone through a couple different stages of the 8As framework here. We'll, we'll let people read the book or we'll put the audio book in the, in the show notes as well so people can check that out to get the full thing. This has been a fantastic conversation. And if people want to learn more about your methodologies, like obviously there's the book, anywhere else where people can interact with you, like Twitter, LinkedIn, a blog, anything? Yeah, two, two other places. I am in many ways the worst when it comes to social media. It's a running joke uh, with my podcast co-host. So I have a podcast called The Experience This Show, which is all about customer experience. Uh, it's 30-minute segments every week. And in that 30 minutes, we tell three different stories. So they're quick little appetizers of customer experience delight for folks to listen to. There's I joke about it. There's a running joke that my uh, co-host, Dan Gingis, who's very big on Twitter, he he does all the Twittering for our accounts. And I'm just like, yeah, I, I, I do none of that business. Best two places to find me are either the podcast experience, this show.com or my website, joeycoleman.com. That's Joey J O E Y like a baby kangaroo or a five-year-old, you know, somewhere Coleman C O L E M A N like the camping equipment, but no relation joeycoleman.com. There's videos there. There's a free download that outlines all of the eight phases and gives you some worksheets to think through this in your own business. But I just, appreciate you inviting me on the show and I appreciate everybody who listened to the conversation and hopefully they got a couple of ideas of things they can do to enhance their customer experience in the first hundred days and beyond. Awesome. And everyone check this out. It is going to change your business. Thanks so much for being here, Joey. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. That's been The Exchange presented by Luke, the returns platform for Shopify. Thanks for listening.